On uh, Wednesday nights, we have, as Gino said, been looking at a series, uh, The Life of the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> and uh, what we're doing is giving a chronology of his life and uh, ministry, and then drawing out devotional thoughts from different sections of Scripture. We probably have four or five more studies left in this. We're getting towards uh, the end of the recorded ministry of Paul in the book of Acts, um, when, as Gino said, when we last saw Paul, he had been rescued from an angry Jewish mob in the temple by the Roman garrison. Commander Lysias didn't quite know what to do with Paul, so he arranged for a confrontation between Paul and his accusers. It only made matters worse. Paul remained in custody while Lysias tried to figure out what to do. Meanwhile, some 40 Jewish men took a vow that they would neither eat nor drink until they killed Paul. Hearing of this plot from Paul's nephew, Lysias sent Paul in the middle of the night to Caesarea, uh, the center of the Roman government in that province. He was turning him over to Governor Felix, which I always think is... Anybody named Felix here? Before I say what I'm going to say. <coughs> I always remember Felix the cat. Some of you are old enough or young enough again because he's popular again to uh, remember Felix the Cat. I always wondered what happened to these 40 guys. Uh, obviously, they started. You know, who was the first one to break down and say, all right, I'm going to get a hamburger, you know, after they figured out they weren't going to kill uh, Paul? And uh, because they did all this in the middle of the night, that's why we titled the study The Midnight Ride of the Revered Paul. Get it? Uh, yeah? Yeah? I, I don't get near enough credit for this stuff. But anyway, the Jewish religious leaders and their lawyer came to Caesarea to press charges against Paul before Felix, realizing there was no evidence against Paul, but fearing to release him uh, in a political move, Felix just kept him under house arrest. Two years later, when Festus replaced Felix as governor, uh, this is the weirdest combination of names in the entire New Testament, Felix, then Festus, who, how, you remember Festus from Gunsmoke, right? How many of you remember Ken, what was his name, Ken? Ken who? Anyway, he's got a, there's a statue of him up in Clovis. Have you ever seen the Festus statue up in Clovis? How many of you have seen Festus in Clovis? Because he was from that area. Yeah, it's, over, it's in downtown Clovis. You can see Festus, who was a character on Gunsmoke for a while. So anyway, Felix, then Festus. Paul was still in custody after two years. With the change in government, the Jews sought extradition of Paul back to Jerusalem. Festus refused, but invited them to come to Caesarea as before and press their charges. After hearing them, Festus asked Paul if he would be willing to return to Jerusalem to stand trial. It was all a ploy to kill him on the way back. Paul refused, and having now spent two years in custody without ever being convicted, he demanded his right as a Roman citizen to appeal his case directly to Caesar Nero in Rome. And once you did that, it was all other uh, trials were off. Uh, you were on your way to Rome. Could take a long time. Uh, to get before Caesar Nero. And this is actually before Caesar Nero was a nut job, <clears throat> but you still didn't want to really appear before Caesar Nero because almost everybody was declared guilty. But Paul decided he was going to exercise his right as a Roman citizen to do that. During New Testament times, uh, oh, well, excuse me, 
after he does that and before he can be sent to Rome, King Agrippa visits Festus and having heard about Paul, he asked to have an audience with him. Only then would he be sent to Rome under guard. Now, during New Testament times, Jerusalem and Judea were governed by a variety of different men. Direct from Rome through Roman province administrators or governors, known as procurators, we're calling them governors, they were uh, uh, governed through the Roman governor of Syria, such as the Decapolis, and they were also Roman-appointed Jewish kings, sometimes called ethnarchs or just rulers or tetrarchs of different parts of the province. And so the Jews, you understand, were an, it was an occupied country. They didn't have autonomy. Some of the, uh, you know, parts of the Roman Empire, though Rome ruled the empire, the countries had their own autonomy. They ruled themselves with their own political system. The Jews always gave Rome trouble, and so they, the Jews had their own kind of government, uh, their own king, who they sometimes recognized and sometimes didn't, and they also had the Roman government uh, and so that's why you have these governors and also King Agrippa, who, as we'll see in a minute, is a descendant of Herod the Great. I think he's his grandson. He's in the line of the Herods. Uh, so Felix and Festus were Roman governors. Agrippa was a descendant of Herod the Great, a Jewish ruler, considered king over his small region. Now, whenever Paul appeared before these rulers, he preached the gospel to him. He doesn't really give a defense of himself except to say, I'm in custody because I believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Uh, and he uh, has in mind to witness to these individuals. It was an amazing privilege to be able to share Jesus Christ with a top-ranking civil official. Uh, I, I don't know... Uh, what kind of fantasies Christians have, spiritual fantasies, but some of, you know, some of our fantasies ought to be that you would, you'd actually get a chance to talk to President Obama and, and you would you know, pin him down on whether or not he's a Christian and does he believe that Jesus Christ died for his sins or any U.S. president or the governor, Jerry Brown. Uh, or anybody that there, you know, you would be in a room with that person, and and your first thought would be, how am I going to share the gospel with this person? Because this is a rare privilege uh, that very few people get. And so Paul had that amazing privilege. Preaching to these rulers was rare and wonderful as a privilege, but it was costly. It cost Paul his freedom. He was in Roman custody for over two years. And that is what afforded him the opportunity to present Christ to them. And so if Paul had ever prayed, and we'll see Jesus had told him he was going to talk to rulers, but if he ever prayed, Lord, let me talk to the rulers, this was the answer to his prayer. In order to talk to these guys, he had to be in custody. And he had to be in custody for two years to get through Felix to Festus and then to Agrippa and then eventually on to Rome where we'll see, we, we do think that he may have uh, spoken before Caesar Nero. In fact, some Christians, there's not a lot of evidence to prove this, it's just a conjecture, but some Christian scholars think it was after he preached the gospel to Nero that Nero sort of went crazy having rejected Christ and he just, you know, went off on his Nero thing. Uh, and, and so this was a, a, a great privilege, but it came at a great price, two years of his freedom and some other things that we're going to talk about. It costs you nothing, of course, to be saved. 
That is to say, salvation is free. It's the free gift of God. It's by God's grace alone through faith alone. If you're not a Christian here tonight, Jesus Christ came and he lived a sinless life and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven uh, and he offers salvation as a free gift of God. Uh, the work of God, the Bible says, is to simply believe that Jesus did that on your behalf and for your sake. And so there's no cost, uh, no work, no merit to salvation. But there is a high cost for the privilege of serving Jesus after you are saved. You, you'd have to see that in a reading of the New Testament uh, when you see what happens to any disciple of Jesus Christ, any follower of the Lord has uh, suffering and affliction and adversity and persecution. There's a, a real cost uh, to serving the Lord after you're saved. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon from Luke on counting the cost of discipleship, put it this way. He said, it is clear from our text that true religion is costly. Far be it from us to create any confusion of thought here, the gifts of God's grace cost us nothing. Neither could his salvation be purchased with money or merit or by vows and penances. If a man should give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly condemned. The gospel motto is without money and without price. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Yet for all that, if a man will be a Christian, it will cost him something. Now, something interesting to ponder as we get into this, were you asked to count the cost before you received Jesus? I'm going to guess that for most of us, the answer was no. And I'm not even suggesting it's a good idea to, to add that to an altar call. Paul's answer would have been no. He was saved on the road to Damascus when Jesus revealed himself to him in his glory. It was only afterward that Jesus told Ananias regarding Paul, this is Acts 9, 15, and 16, he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I would show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Paul had gotten saved on the road to Damascus, and Jesus is telling Ananias, a, a believer who he's sending to him to heal him and to have him receive the Holy Spirit, he says, he's going to have to suffer a lot. Uh, there's a high cost to serving me. And so Jesus saved Paul, and then he showed him how many things he must suffer serving him. He didn't stop him on the road and explain the cost and then ask Paul, now, do you still want to get saved? Do you understand? He didn't stop Paul on the road to Damascus and say, now, here's what I have in store for you. Shipwrecks and beatings and nakedness and robbers and perils and uh, floggings and imprisonments and all. He, he didn't, and he didn't say, now, are, are you on board with that? Because if you're not going to be on board with that, let's decide that right now. You need to count the cost. He didn't ask Paul to count the cost at all in that sense. He didn't describe all of his future sufferings and give Paul the chance to opt out. And so counting the cost, in this sense at least, really means recognizing the cost. It means coming to grips with the fact that serving God will cost you something. So salvation is free. It's, it costs you nothing. It costs God everything. But after you become a Christian, there's a price to be paid for serving the Lord. 
And the cost is the recognition that all that you are and all that you have really is a stewardship from God, which is to be used as a means of reaching out to others in the world. No one does it perfectly. Some people do it more or we would say better than others. Uh, But I think that's a pretty good definition of what it means to count the cost. It's to recognize after you're a Christian that all you are and all you have is a stewardship from God and it's to be used as a means of outreach in this world. And so let's take a look at Paul in relationship to these three Roman leaders and see what insights we can draw from the text about recognizing the cost of serving Jesus. So first of all, in chapter 24, verse 24, if you want to get over there. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. For two years, the great apostle Paul reasoned with Felix and his wife, Drusilla, For a veteran missionary who had seen multitudes of conversions and who had planted many, many churches, that's got to be a little disheartening. I mean, you'd been all over the world. You'd pioneered work all over the world. You'd left disciples. You'd established churches. Now, for two years, you're talking to the Roman governor and his wife on multiple occasions, and the guy doesn't... You don't even make a dent in this guy. And to be preaching on righteousness and self-control, but still be being asked for a bribe every time, then you've got to wonder if you're maybe losing your edge. So you're not only sharing the gospel and the guy's not getting saved, you're talking about living a righteous lifestyle and he wants you to grease his palm. And so he's not getting it at all. For lack of a better term, let's call this measurable ineffectiveness. Measurable ineffectiveness. You have a congregation of two, and after two years, if you measure success by conversion, you're at zero. So if you're reporting to the home church, you're going to lose your budget is what's going to happen. On, on, I mean, in modern terms. Now, I can't speak to Paul's state of mind about this. Maybe he was unaffected by it. I can tell you I'd be bummed, seriously bummed. I couldn't help but feel like a guy who'd been transferred to the worst posting ever as some sort of discipline. I'd have to wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to see Felix and Drusilla again. This is like being in ADAC, Alaska for the Navy. It's like I did something wrong and they sent me where there's, there's, there's nobody. I'm in a tower by myself as a, as a punishment. Serving the Lord will take a mental toll on you if you don't recognize that there's a cost to serving him. He may want you to be measurably ineffective for a time. I'm not saying we should revel in it or that we shouldn't analyze our effectiveness or think that we're always going to be ineffective, uh, but serving the Lord uh, isn't about 
effect all the time. Let me put it another way. The effectiveness of your service isn't yours to control. All you can do is be faithful to serve. If you are faithful but have little or no measurable success, it's costly, but it need not take an emotional toll. I mean, it was costly for Paul to be there for two years. Uh, He had other contact. He was under house arrest so his friends could visit him and things like that. He wasn't in a dungeon. He had other contact with other people, and he may have had fruitful ministry going on. He may or may not have written some epistles during this time. There's some debate about that. But outwardly, he's ministering to Felix with no effect, but it allows him to stay there so that he can next minister to Festus and also get to Agrippa, two guys he wouldn't have been able to talk to otherwise. So if Jesus comes to Paul and says, Paul, I want you to minister to these three guys in succession, and it's a great privilege. They need to hear the gospel from you, but in order to do it, you're going to have to be in, in custody for two years. Are you on board with that? I'm sure Paul, I'm sure any of us would say, sure, yeah, right, because I want to get to that. I want to be able to be the guy that, that serves you in that way. But Paul didn't know this. He just day after day got up. He was falsely accused. There were no real charges against him. He's in, under house arrest, and he's talking to Felix every other day or twice a w- week or however long and having no effect. And so uh, little or no measurable success, but um, it, realizing that, Serving the Lord comes at a cost, and he's willing to pay that cost. Uh, He keeps on with it. Now, let's move on to Festus. One day, when Agrippa was visiting, Festus brought out Paul to address them. And so Festus took over from uh, Felix, and then uh, Agrippa had heard about Paul. Agrippa's the Jewish king, so he knows Judaism, and he understands uh, a little bit about Paul, and so he wants to... Uh, hear Paul speak. And so as Paul presented the gospel to these guys, Festus blurts out this reaction. It's Acts 26, 24. He says, now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. And so, you know, get the scene. This is a public scenario, lots of officials, they made a, bunch, a big deal about it, and all of a sudden Festus loses his cool and he says, Paul, you're nuts. It's hard for me to get a handle on exactly what Festus meant. I don't think he believed that getting a PhD results in a condition of insanity. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't saying that just because you're smart, you go crazy. I think it's more likely that he thought Paul's concentration on only the word of God had rendered him closed-minded and foolish. What we can confidently say is that this was a severe personal attack upon Paul. It was slander of the worst kind in front of city officials, in front of the Jewish king. Um, I mean, to just to blurt out, hey, I think you're crazy. If you take any sort of stand for the Lord, sooner or later, you're going to be personally attacked, maybe even publicly. You need to recognize that is part of the cost of serving Jesus if you're going to be able to overcome it and press forward. You're going to need to be a little bit tough-skinned as a Christian because you're going to be falsely accused. People are going to say things about you behind your back for sure, but also sometimes in front of you. And you need to know that that's just a cost of serving the Lord. And um, like the first century disciples, we should rejoice when those things happen. We generally don't. I know I don't like them. 
until I remind myself that I'm in good company because I obviously am ministering for Jesus if people are saying these things about me. Now, Paul answered Festus, and then he pressed Agrippa for a decision. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Paul was bound. He was in chains. He had been for two years. As we'll see, he was going to uh, continue to be in custody for quite a bit longer. His trip to Rome was going to take a, a while, and once he got there, he would, get, he would also still be in custody. Uh, and so, as we already mentioned, the Lord, serving the Lord, had cost him his freedom. You and I are probably not going to be bound by chains for our faith anytime soon. I mean, things could change overnight. Uh, Christianity is the most persecuted faith in the world when you look at other countries, and a lot of our brothers and sisters, multitudes of them around the world, are uh, bound and in chains and worse, uh, but we're not living in fear you know, right now. I don't think, I honestly don't think tonight that the Hanford Police Department's going to come in and shut us down and carry us off and shoot some of us, uh, that, you know, so we, we don't, we, we, that may happen at some point before the tribulation, but um, it's not going to happen tonight. However, um, I do think we could think in terms of boundaries, not being bound, but having boundaries, because I think sometimes Christians feel that they are bound by God, or we usually say that we feel trapped in a certain situation. It might be a marriage, it might be a job, it might be a church, it might be a place, uh, but you, you feel like there's no way out, like God himself has hedged you in. That is also part of the cost of serving Jesus. God sets boundaries for you to keep you in the very place where he wants to bless you. He knows that it is there that he can teach you patience and kindness and acceptance and forgiveness, and he's put you there for a reason uh, in order to minister to others. And, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Christians, they feel bound, and uh, they don't recognize that God's boundaries are loving boundaries. And the example that we always use here is that of, of parents and their children. If you're a loving parent, you set realistic boundaries for your children. Uh, you know, you don't let them go and play on the freeway and chase cars on the freeway. You know, that's not, not fun. You probably shouldn't even joke about that. We used to when we were kids say, oh, go play on the freeway, you know. Um, I, had a, I had an uncle. I, my, I, I think, oh, my, he's still alive. My Uncle Mike, great guy, really a funny guy. Uh, but when he was younger, he was one of these guys you could get to do anything. And um, he, he has a lot of burns on his body. And uh, I asked about it one time, and they said that they had, uh, uh, some of his friends had dared him to see how much gas was in the car by lighting a match and looking in the gas, you know, under the gas cap and stuff. And he... He thought, oh, sure, you know, and stuff. And so he lit a match, and uh, there were enough fumes to ignite, and he got pretty badly burned and stuff. And so, uh, you know, not, not, 
not really good friends to be around, you know. So, but, uh, so we as parents, we would set realistic boundaries. We do set realistic boundaries for our kids. And you'll find or you found as your children get older, they don't like the boundaries that you set. Their mythical friends always are beyond those boundaries. Whoever their friends are, these, these mythical partners that they think they have, none of them have those crazy Christian boundaries that you have. And, and you feel bad, but you, you set realistic boundaries for them to keep them safe and to give them the best chance of a future. And they, they kick against that. Well, we do the same thing with God. God puts us in a situation. We think, God, I do not like this. I want out of this. So we're not in chains like the Apostle Paul. That would actually be easier because there's nothing you can do about it. We, are, we have these boundaries, many times gentle, and we just blow the doors out of them. We say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to walk away from this marriage or from this church or from this job or from this city or from this situation when God has put us there. And so we want to know that the part of the cost of serving the Lord is to live within the boundaries that God has set for us where we can flourish. It's in the dark that light really shines. It's where preservative is definitely needed that you can be spiritual salt. So it stands to reason if you're, the, if, you know, you're a light, uh, you, know, you have the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to be in the darkest place possible or at least in a dark place so that people know that there is a light. Now, you and I may not have had a Damascus Road type of conversion, but the Lord nevertheless says to each of his dear saints, I will show you how many things you must suffer for my namesake. No Christian escapes suffering. You can't serve a suffering Savior unless you're a suffering saint. And all of you could give testimony tonight of some physical or emotional or spiritual suffering that you're either in right now or that you've come through uh, because that's just what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Next time you are struggling in your service to Jesus, or maybe if you are right now, ask yourself, have I forgotten to recognize that this is the cost for the privilege of serving the Lord? It, it, it costs Paul his freedom. It's going to cost us something to serve the Lord and then we can rest in God's plan, knowing that he works all things together for good to them that love him and are the called according to his purpose. Amen? All right, praise the Lord.